when, you know, at least cryptocurrency, there's like a half-hearted wave toward you're getting a reward for solving a puzzle for encrypting a ledger book block. They didn't even do that wave at, well, they don't at Binance and, and uh Coinbase and Crypto.com. They just say, all right, we've just made some more. Here you go. No puzzle or anything else. And people were buying them. So it's like if you had a Beanie Baby that cost you absolutely nothing to make and people would still collect it. But wait, not even have a Beanie Baby. Let's just talk about the idea of a Beanie Baby represented by these numbers online. And that's what people were buying. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and... Jeff McClure. And uh, we are, now that we've said our, our names, we always have this little blank. What, what are we supposed to do again? Now, what are we supposed to do now? We, we're supposed to do some kind of a program here on the economy. This is the personal wealth coach. And hopefully today we'll be enlightening you with things about finance, or maybe more likely befuddling you with the complexity of the world that we live in. Uh, hopefully can we can enlighten more than befuddle, but often what we wind up with is befuddle lightenment there. So beflight it's beflightenment. Beflightenment. Um, right. so before we get started though, we have to disclose some things. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Why are we telling you that? Because we fall under some different regulations. Uh, it's registered with the SEC as an investment advisory firm. That means fiduciary advice given and so on. We don't give fiduciary advice on the air. We can't. It's not private. We don't know all of you. Uh, we can't custom tailor our advice to you. Even if you're sending us an email, it wouldn't be private for us to answer it on the air. So we give educational information while we're on here. And I think that's pretty important to know. Um, just because the SEC is who the firm registers with to be a fiduciary doesn't mean that the SEC likes us or dislikes us. It doesn't imply that the SEC has any feelings at all. In fact, I don't think they have feelings. I think they're pretty unfeeling out there. They are a government agency. It's, it's, if it's not in triplicate, it doesn't exist. I think they feel untrusting. Yes. And that's their role. I mean, they're supposed to be untrusting. So right. we got we to say that, and it's important for you to understand. And now, your would, would you deem to tell us the next uh, The information that we use in this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Or, or especially unsaid information. The huh? Accuracy and completeness of unsaid information is strictly a not guaranteed. I will guarantee that unsaid information has not been said. Oh, wow. I see what you did there. It is not complete. Right. Hmm. I will guarantee the incompleteness of unsaid information. But what about if we type it? On the radio? Yeah, it's a very, very new new media. It's uh, This is going to be uh, Web 4.0. Oh, I yeah. thought it was... It's called... Web, the, it's Web actually X. moving backwards. It's, it's the telegraph. 
Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, or teletype. Yeah, so so we could do it. Um, we also don't pay for this time on the station. We are also not paid for the time. This is not a paid commercial program. Uh, the firm advertises about the radio program, but that's it. Uh, the studio also advertises about the radio program. There is no quid pro quo senator. In fact, I think if we said we were going to stop doing the radio program, um, I don't know that it would go over so well at the studio. I think they would not like that um, for mm. some reason. I might be wrong. I mean, I haven't talked to them about it in a long time. So uh, I think they like us still. I want to talk about the headline of ev every major publication that I've been able to find today, because if it's the headline everywhere, people I'm sure are curious about it. And that's about what happened with FTX, the crypto exchange that um, turned into a massive ordeal so far. We have headlines on as I said, about every major publication, most of them are salacious. Most of the stories, the, even the stories in places like The Economist and The Wall Street Journal and The Financial Times, places that we would normally expect hard-nosed um, statistical reports to come out. Instead, they're focusing on, here's the, the, the headline of The Wall Street Journal, they live together. They worked together. They lost billions together. Inside Sam Bankman Fried's doomed FTX empire next week on Lifetime. I added the next week on Lifetime. But that's By the actually way, he's the headline. He's popularly known as SBF. Yes, SBF. Um, though he's unpopular now, so he may have that changed. Well, I think the things that he's known as right now by a lot of people, probably we shouldn't say on the radio. Yes, there are a lot of bad words being said about him. So the salaciousness of many of these headlines are part of why they're headlines. It's part of why they're leading stories is because everybody wants to hear about these horrible people who were doing horrible things. And as sad as I am to say this, and I prick the salaciousness bubble and say these were some pretty ignorant, intelligent people that jumped into this and were given so many accolades and credits for early successes that they didn't do things like hire accountants, um, audit their own books, uh, <laughs> balance the checkbook, determine whose money was whose before spending it. Things like that, which you can point at and say, how nefarious and I just look at it and say, yeah, it was nefarious in an ignorant way. They had no, absolutely no training running a business. And people were trusting them with tens of billions of dollars. And uh, this is facepalm moment. You can all jump up and down about the salaciousness of what was going on and how didn't people know Please go back and listen to our radio program for the past three years. Every time we talk about crypto and we've specifically talked about FTX and the people in charge there and how they're just kind of basically printing stuff and calling it a currency when, you know, at least cryptocurrency, there's like a half-hearted wave toward you're getting a reward for solving a puzzle for 
encrypting a ledger book block. They didn't even do that wave at, well, they don't at Binance and, and uh, Coinbase and Crypto.com. They just say, all right, we've just made some more. Here you go. No puzzle or anything else. And people were buying them. So it's like if you had a Beanie Baby that cost you absolutely nothing to make and people would still collect it. But wait, not even have a Beanie Baby. Let's just talk about the idea of a Beanie Baby represented by these numbers online. And that's what people were buying because they all agreed at that point that they were worth something. And we've you said this before the radio program began uh, Man, this this keeps happening. It happens so regularly. It's just mind-boggling, except that it's so regular, and anybody that studies history will see people find something they think they can conv- convince the world is valuable and then sell it, and then eventually the world realizes it's not valuable and it becomes worthless, and everybody turns to the person that sold it and says, oh, how horrible, and the person that was selling it was saying, what, you guys bought it <laughs> what, what? well you know at least if you had a kid and you had and you bought beanie babies or you had some beanie yeah, babies, you had something the kid could play with the beanie babies yeah with cryptocurrency you lit i know that if, if you if you've seen the pictures in the newspaper in the media or wherever it shows a coin for for a bitcoin or something there is no coin there is nothing there there is a digital uh, encrypted number that you can't see. Right. Well, and the thing is, that's true when you log into your bank account. You can't see the dollars behind the numbers that are but, your bank. But, I, but it's but backed I can go by... I can get the dollars yeah. and I can go buy something. It's them. backed by the bank and the bank is hopefully backed by some places like the Federal Reserve and the FDIC and have rules that they have to follow. And you do have the ability to go and say, hey, I want to replace this with another one just like it because it's damaged somehow. If your cryptocurrency, somebody gets a peek at its key, it's worthless. And you can't get it replaced because somebody looked at it. And the other thing is, and I think this is in in my discussions with crypto believers, they keep coming back to the fact it's going to be the new currency. No, <laughs> I'm, I don't often say unambiguously uh, without the hedging or anything else, yes or no about something, but I'm going to say no. Something that can drop 74% in a very short period of time will never be a currency. It'll never be used to buy and sell things except maybe incidentally, I mean, e- Elon, Elon Musk um, made an effort I started to say Elon Trump, and I have no idea what it came out. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk well, made an effort to allow people to buy Teslas with cryptocurrency, Bitcoin specifically, and he dropped it rather quickly. And the reason is Bitcoin dropped, and he had said they had set a price for the Teslas in Bitcoin, and some people bought Bitcoins for a very substantial discount because the value of Bitcoins dropped dramatically. And he said, stop that immediately. As a matter of fact, it, it's fascinating. Even uh, SBF, the guy who headed up FTX, you know, well, we're using a lot of letters here, liquidated 
a bunch of cryptocurrency, turned it into dollars in order to use it. But 300 million. We, we actually exactly. don't know what he did with that. He could have gone and bought crypto with it. There's no knowing what he did with the 300 million. But he converted it to dollars first. Well, that's what it was raised in. So when he raised the money, it came in as dollars. He could have doubled down on his own portfolio. We don't know. I, well, there, the story I read said it came in, converted it to crypto, uh, and probably converted it back into dollars and took it. But that's we know he that, took there's it. There's so but we much don't we know. don't know. Yeah. yeah, there's so much we don't know. And since he took it in the Bahamas and not in the United States, the question is: Does he do income tax in the United States on money that he took? That there's man. Yeah, a this lot is, of people. This is lost why it's a in- tremendous amount of money because they made a very major mistake, and that's something we want to talk about. Because right. you could be making the same mistake right now, and that's the key. And it doesn't have to be a big headline company or a big new fad company. It's just a company that's not audited, that doesn't, well, even you if, can't even trust if it is their audited. books. Even if it is audited and, and you can trust their books. Uh, Enron was audited. Right, and the, and the and, auditors and, were and, on board. <laughs> well, they were doing something that was completely legal and appropriate under generally accepted accounting rules. Until we changed them saying, hey, that's not appropriate. Right, and, but you don't know. There's basically, and, and, and we said this in the newsletter, and I think if you don't hear anything else if you're listening, if you remember this, if you're going to pool your money, and pooling money is when you, for instance, put money in the bank, you pooled your money with the other depositors. If you're going to pool your money, when you put money in a mutual fund, you're pooling money with other depositors. That pool is by definition at risk. So there needs to be something backing that pool of money, backing the people who are managing the money. There needs to be a law, a federal law, or a federal regulator, or preferably both, or federal or a federal agency that has been uh, chartered by the federal government that provides insurance on that money, something that causes regulation and some form of legal backing to the values in there. Otherwise, they could disappear in a moment, which is what happened with Madoff, which is what happened with Enron, which is what happened in a lot of other places with uh, Stanford. We've, we've forgotten about Stanford pretty much. He right. ran a big... He, he was the second largest Ponzi scheme ever. So why would we remember him with such folks yeah. as Madoff, who was first? Happened at the and same time, but if, it, if, it had, if Madoff hadn't been caught then, Stanford would be the name everybody remembered. And there's advertisements I see on a regular basis for uh, if you have $500,000 or more, send it to us and we'll manage it for you. If you investigate things like that and you dig in to say, once I give you my $500,000, what happens if you take it and run? What happens if you go bankrupt? Who is auditing you? Who You have some kind of insurance on my $500,000 that I give you so that if you go under, my money doesn't go under with you? That's the kind of question that it is very, very important to always ask. There is a custodian someplace. Somebody is taking your money and they promise to do something with it, okay, who's regulating that somebody? Who's auditing that somebody? And is that somebody got some form of guarantee under the law, not company, yeah, we guarantee your money, okay, but who guarantees you? 
it's it's crucial to understand and and at the the bottom line and this is just my very sincere personal opinion either the federal government or at the very least a state government which is potentially questionable needs to back wherever your money is pooled and back it explicitly so that if something happens and the in the in the institution where you have put your money suddenly is found to be fraudulent or goes under that your money gets replaced. And I know that sounds old-fashioned, it sounds ridiculous, but I've sure seen a lot of people over the years who pooled their money with other people to do something and found out that it was all all or mostly gone suddenly after uh, thinking it was completely secure. Uh, One that we've forgotten about, and I'm probably going to be unpopular for mentioning this, but I'm used to being unpopular. Back the last time we saw interest rates go up dramatically, a whole series of life insurance companies who had issued high interest rate, relatively speaking to the economy at the time, promises on life insurance cash value and on annuities started going plump, plump, plump right after another. There what did, was what a does that mean the time. when they do plump, they, plump, plump? They... That's declared insolvent. Aha. They were declared insolvent and seized by the state regulators. See, they were regulated by the states, but they were seized. Some of those cases, people found out rather quickly they only got back 20 or 30 or 40 cents on every dollar they had put in there. In other cases, it took them 20 years and more before they were informed that they would only get back a small percentage of what they had and what they had invested and saved there. And a lot of those were in retirement plans. And, and you say, how could such a thing happen? And I've had insurance agents say, that's not possible. It'll never happen. Well, it did. And the, one of the advantages or disadvantages that I have for having been in this business more than 40 years is I remember when it did happen and the people coming in to see me at the time who said, I need to do something else with the little money I have left. Uh, and, and it's not, it's not something that's taught in the schools. It's not something that's, uh, it, you have to dig to figure out whether there's anybody or any law or anything else backing where you put your money. We do that. But I can tell you unambiguously, it is hard work to try to figure that, to, to try to find that answer uh, in some cases. In, in, in some cases, you dig and dig and dig and you find out, nope, there's nothing backing that money at all. If that company goes under, just say bye-bye to your money. And, and, it, and it, But it's important. And I know it's been a long time since we've had uh, something other than a cryptocurrency major failure. But this is what happens. We go for a long period of time without these major failures, without these major bankruptcies that take a lot of money from a lot of people. And then they start happening again because we forgot about them. There was a move long ago, for 30, 40 years ago, to have the federal government regulate, actually there's been several of these along the way, uh, regulate and back insurance companies that offered guaranteed annuities and guaranteed this is and that's and the other. And it was effectively smashed and put down. And so we didn't get it. And so it's, it is really seriously, if you've got your money locked up in an institution someplace, whatever that institution is, it is up to you, the investor, the saver, to ensure that there is adequate protection under the law, not from some nebulous guarantee fund, but adequate protection. So if that company goes under, 
your money doesn't go with it. And that's my soapbox. Thank you. All right. Agreed. Uh, well, let's talk about a little bit about, about the rest of the economy, if you don't mind. Okay. I realize crypto is is exciting, and uh, particularly when somebody else is being hurt by something, we can get really excited about it. Let me throw um, two statistics in there. Where our okay. unemployment right now is about 3.7%. Mm-hmm. Our total job opening rate is at 6.5%, which is more than double. We have more right. than double the jobs available for the total unemployed. Mm-hmm. That's just a, that's not an indicator for us being in a recession right now. Okay. Now back to you. And that's I, useless that statistic. Is, that's one. No, it's not useless. It's very useful. There's a side to our, there's, there's an essence to our economy right now that the Federal Reserve doesn't particularly care for because we're spending a lot of money buying a limited number of things, which causes inflation to rise or it traditionally has caused inflation to rise. Um, but we have an economy that has plenty of fuel, that has plenty of momentum, has plenty of demand, an abundance of all of those things. Seeing within a very limited time, seeing it slip into recession, like the early 2023 that some people were saying, or earlier some folks were saying uh, in print and online that we we're already in a recession. No, no, that no. Uh, we have a very, very strong, healthy, uh, probably overheating economy that's running too strongly. And it's going to take a while to slow this economy down, even to the point where our demand does not exceed supply. But there are some very, very good signs on the other side of the balance sheet. Um, the producer price index for the last two months has dropped. Well, what the heck is a producer price index? For final demand, I might add. What that means is the prices that wholesalers, manufacturers, uh, service providers are providing to retailers who then resell it to the public has been declining for two months now. Uh, import prices the 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 import price index has been declining for several months now those both rose substantially for months before inflation hit the public before the consumer price index rose and they historically um have preceded moves in inflation or deflation in the united states i do think by the way and we're, we're already starting to see it. I just saw an article in the Wall Street Journal on it, and I think it's completely accurate. The Black Friday sales, for those of you who follow such things, have started early. Retailers are cutting prices for goods across the board. Probably 80% of the stuff we call goods and the economists call goods in the United States is seeing price declines. There, we're seeing discounts. We're seeing inventories built up and nobody to sell them to, and the business is sort of panicking a little bit and saying, we need to cut prices to get people to buy this stuff. That is the reverse of inflation. Well, let me tell you where inflation is still going strong and what has to be addressed, and it's going to be painful. We were discussing in here the other day, I was listening to our staff discuss having Christmas lights put up on their houses, and they pretty much unanimously determined they weren't going to have Christmas lights put up because the expense of having somebody come in and put up Christmas lights on your house was so astronomically higher than it has been in the past. That's inflation. And that's what we call services inflation. If you go to a restaurant, the price 
to eat there is significantly higher than it was, not because the price of food has gone up in the past couple of months, but because the price of labor is still too high. Why is it too high? There's not enough people to fill the jobs. Now, here's the big question. If we only have as many jobs or as many employees out there in working today as we had before the pandemic, the economy is pretty much recovered to where it was before the pandemic. Why is it that we still have a labor shortage? Something changed during that period of time. Uh, demand for jobs went up dramatically. Why? Very frankly, there are some basic things that I found there, and I'm certainly not the, uh, I don't have a PhD in economics or anything, and I haven't done research across the country and written five papers that have been peer reviewed. But I can say that a lot, what we got is what we asked for. A lot of jobs that were done overseas have come back to the United States, but we don't have any people to fill those positions. That's a problem. Why is it a problem? Because that means you got, there is a supply demand imbalance for labor in the United States. Employees are in desperate need and desperate shortage. Employers are having a heck of a time finding people to do work because there's not anybody left to do work. And I, Certainly don't want to inflame thoughts that there's a bunch of people sitting at home doing nothing. There's actually not a lot of people sitting at home doing nothing. There are some. There are always some, and there always have been, and there always will be. But all the sampling and looking and researching uh, suggests that there aren't a lot of people sitting at home doing nothing. Now, during the pandemic, we had a lot of people sitting at home doing nothing because, frankly, we were pumping money into the economy to prevent a depression from taking place. And so everybody got a check so they didn't have to work if they were at the low end of the economic spectrum. It's not true anymore. They're not getting those checks anymore. And as a result, there's no indication that there are more people sitting at home not working and being paid by the government than there was before the pandemic. So if our labor pool is grown a little bit, and it has, and we have about as many people employed now as we did before the pandemic, we do. Why do we have 6% of the available jobs in the United States unfilled with employers bidding higher and higher and higher to get somebody to work? Yeah, 6.7%. Yeah. Okay, 6. Well, it was 0.7%. It was a very low number. Before the pandemic, so we'll say we have five or six percent more jobs, but no more people to work at them. And and it really boils down. There's really and there's a couple of things. And you don't think this is crazy. One of them is the fact we've brought a lot of jobs home. They're not being done in China anymore, and they're not being done in other places. The other thing is a lot of those jobs that are sitting there empty that people are begging somebody to do, including put lights up on houses, were previously filled by people who came across the border from the south border illegally to do the jobs and they're not coming across. And I know you hear these numbers about this tremendous number of people coming across the border. They're not Most coming to work. The people, <laughs> the people that are coming across the border that are running these huge numbers are refugees, yeah. not people looking for work. So That's not a 100%. There's a lot of people still coming across looking for work, but there's nowhere near the number that we used to have. Right. The trends have shifted very, very much where, you know, early 21st century, the vast majority of Ill illegal immigration was coming with either a job known or a job within a very short period of time. 
where now the vast majority of illegal immigration is coming because there's a danger known and someone's trying to kill them where they live. It's a very different and, outlook. So the, they're not increasing the labor pool directly immediately. And this is also something that's not just happening in the United States. Europe has encountered precisely the same thing at precisely the same time. People are not flooding into Europe looking for jobs. There are some from countries to their south. They're flooding into Europe because they would be killed if they stayed home or their children will be enslaved or put into armies if they stay home. So they're abandoning everything and fleeing to someplace that's more socioeconomically stable. And the United States and the Western Hemisphere represents that virtue. The European Union represents that virtue in the European continent. Uh, the Asians do having, are having a hard time finding any places socioeconomically stable where they can go. Uh, so as always, by the way, over the last 10 years or so, the and I read this the other day. I don't have 100% backing on it. I just read it and read it in three places. Immigration in the United States has shifted from the Hispanic countries to the Asian continent. There's a lot of people coming into the United States across the Pacific. Many of them are uh, not documented, not legal, but they apparently are a lot better at getting the documentation to making them look legal than the people who come from the South. And so they don't make the headlines as well because they're not caught as often. Um, many of them are very intelligent. Many of them speak English well. Uh, this is one of the issues that is beneath the radar, but it's going on. And it's going on extensively from everything I've been able to determine. The key, though, is those people are coming across and getting jobs almost immediately, and they're actually benefiting our economy. We just have a really screwed up immigration system that says in, in, in our, we, have, we have this huge gap between the number of people we have available to work and the number of jobs we have. And we have an immigration system that says you can't fill that gap. Right. It sounds Which like we're we're not good. Let's, it, it could sound like we're advocating for illegal immigration here. We're no. not. We're advocating for a revamping of the legal system. And this is some, I talked about this last week. Um, the Democrats agree we need to revamp the legal system when it comes to immigration. The Republicans agree we need to completely revamp. Come start from scratch and go over the whole thing. They just don't agree at all on how <clears throat> so different from each other originally. And I, I said this last week, we had members of the original Tea Party before it kind of became other things uh, talking about, you know, tax free day when you have paid your taxes for the year. And uh, and then it slowly kind of shifted over to immigration as much as taxes uh, the original Tea Party folks. And so they're looking at immigration and they say, we have to enforce the laws. We've got laws on the books that aren't being enforced. Let's enforce them and then let's rewrite the laws. Well, we have these waves of ultra enforcement, depending on who's politically in control, followed by waves of layback on the enforcement, followed by now we've had two presidents that are both in the ultra enforcement department. And I know that's shocking if you're a Republican to hear that said about the Biden administration, when we do have illegal immigration at the level that we do, more 
incarcerations in immigration facilities have happened during the first year of the Biden administration than in the first year of the Trump administration. That's hard for people to comprehend, but you it's like steering the Titanic. It doesn't matter what the logistical aspect is compared to the political speeches. The reality is that there are a lot of people being incarcerated and then suddenly being let free and then suddenly not being let free. And this was happening under the Trump administration as well. Our system is thoroughly broken. The Republicans can't do it right. And the Democrats can't do it right with the laws that are written. So what does that leave? Um, it leaves us in a quandary and it's unlikely that Congress is going to fix this at any time soon. <laughs> and executive action is not a solution. Trump tried it. Biden's tried it. It gets challenged. If it's not the law, it can't continue. The interesting thing is the law that we have now is in essence the same law that we have had for about 60 years. Yeah, I said that. I said and that last week. The point is Ronald Reagan saw that it was broken uh -huh. and really, really, really wanted to fix it. So did Walter Mondale. <laughs> uh, and proposed an Immigration Reform Act. And the one thing that the Democrats and the Republicans, one of the many things that the Democrats and the Republican could agree on, Republicans could agree on in Congress is they didn't want to do that. And there was an amnesty. There was an amnesty program that was written in by Congress and signed by President Reagan that many Republicans was, point back at. The debate at the time was, hey, the laws are really broken. Should we punish these people over here for our own bad laws. Oh, let's just forgive them and fix the and laws. And write new laws. And write they, the new laws. forgave them and didn't write the new right. laws. So it was just a, hey, anybody can break the law and it caused more illegal immigrants to come because we were just forgiving people for doing it. We never rewrote the law. And that's the thing that's missing from party platforms on all parties. <laughs> It's interesting. The unions who back the Democrats do not want to rewrite the law because as long as there are a as long as there's a shortage of labor, union wages go up, and that makes then that means a percentage of that goes to the union bosses. So the union bosses in no way are going to want to rewrite the law. The Republicans have constituencies that don't like immigration, so they don't want to rewrite the law to allow legal immigration. So one of the things that two parties can agree on is we should leave the broken laws broken in place because both of them have political advantages to do so. That's it in a nutshell. It's not a good law. It is, we need, one of the reasons we're having inflation right now, probably the prime reason at this particular moment in time, is the fact we don't have enough workers to do the jobs we want to do. And yet, listening to the rhetoric in this campaign, the... One of the people who won, I won't even say which party, was accusing the other of supporting job-crushing and job-reducing measures in Congress. Whoa, we seem to have done the opposite. We have created too many jobs. And the Federal Reserve is left with the task of reducing the number of available jobs. And the only way they can reduce the number of available jobs is to slow down the economy which is a poor way of doing it. Yes. It's a conundrum, a quagmire. It is, this is a demographic issue that should be left to 
economists, but you don't really want the economists making the decision. They they have trouble making decisions because there's always other options. They have too many hands. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to Congress, th- they have too many hands as well. And whatever they decide is probably not what we actually wanted, but at least they make decisions when they do. Well, this is one where they haven't. And yeah, and that's it's a big factor. And when we look at the areas with the greatest inflation, those are also the areas with the greatest lack of labor supply. And that labor supply in the past was filled with I- illegals. It's not. Let me just mention one more thing about the economy. We talked about the fact that prices at the upstream level are starting to come down. Uh, so we are likely to see inflation decline into 2023. And hopefully that means that the Federal Reserve won't have to raise rates to the point where we wind up with a recession. The other thing that's kind of a conundrum, even as prices are coming down, between last month and this month, the retail spending is up 1.3%. You multiply that times 12 months and you get a big number. Right. Uh, and, and so as a result, we are still, we, our economy is on a roll, folks. Uh, and higher interest rates, while they're putting a damper on housing pretty dramatically, are not slowing much else down. I, I have a quick correction to throw out there. I said the leading economic indicators, all of them are down right now. I was incorrect. And I need to make that clear. We had one indicator in the positive for October. It was only fractionally, minorly in the positive, and that's the interest rate spread between 10-year T-bonds less the fund rates. Um, Because of the interest rate rises and the way that that's worked, we've gone to a positive there. That's been a negative for a long time. But all of the other nine are negatives. I just read an interesting article about a speech by a member of the Federal Reserve that says we're looking at the wrong numbers. That spread that you just talked about, which is still positive, is the yield curve he said we should be looking at. Right. So, yeah. Which means we probably won't have a recession. I don't, well, I don't know. Anyway, when, we, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give investment advice, portfolio management at a fiduciary basis for people of relatively high net worth. Uh, locally, we have voicemail at... 254-947-1111. Or toll-free, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can read our newsletter there. You can sign up for it uh, and get it every Friday. You can uh, listen to our podcasts or radio programs going way back. You can find our podcasts anywhere they're available. We have a contact form there, or you can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.